0: Ben here, popping on before we start the episode to remind you guys that I will be speaking at Intelligent Speech Online this year. It's an online conference of history podcasts with a bunch of deep dives and roundtables featuring some of our favorite podcasting friends: Pontifax to Charles Rankium, the Siecle, Wittenberg to Westphalia, loads of amazing guests. And you guys can join too. If you go to intelligentspeechonline.com and use the discount code Royale to get discounted tickets, you get to attend the virtual conference on the 4th of November. Plus, if you miss any of it, you get access to all of the recordings, so don't miss out. I've finally settled on my own topic of discussion at this conference. The theme is contingencies, when history meets the backup plan, and I am going to be talking about the most successful backup plan in all of French history, and that's none other than Joan of Arc, the Hail Mary of the Hundred Years' War. I'll be discussing not only our complex modern relationship with Joan as a historical icon, but also how this image was intentionally constructed and the conspiracy headed by Yolande of Anjou and her family to bring Joan to the Dauphin's court and help her change the fortunes of France but the only way to hear that spiel on Joan, my favourite historical figure of all time, you'll have to grab your tickets right now on intelligentspeechonline.com and support the future of history podcasts. Remember to use the discount code Royale R-O-Y-A-L-E, and I'll see you there. <laughs>
1: Regency of
2: Madness!
0: Bonjour and bienvenue to Battle Royale, where we are passing judgment on all of the regents of King Charles VI, or at least uh, 10 out of the billion that were regents of Charles VI, and uh, this time we're doing uh, the third of the five episodes. So I guess person number f- person number five and person number six. That's how maths works. Um, and um, yeah, and, and, we've, and we've got we've, uh, we've got Josh back. Sorry, this is a very confused <laughs> intro. I should introduce Eliza first. My pal Ben Clark.
2: And I'm Eliza Summers.
0: And we have got Josh again. <laughs> Hello again. Josh from Grand Dukes of the West. You're very you're most welcome. We, you were saying just uh before we started recording that you wanted to push back on some of the anti-Burgundian sentiment of last episode.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh Veronica tends to be quite uh anti Burgundian. And don't get me wrong, I understand some of her animosity towards John the Fearless, but you know Philip yeah. the Bold at least, right? You know, he yeah, didn't mo- do quite a bit. Most much. of that
0: an- animosity was directed towards yeah. John the Fearless, who is the person that you will be talking about
3: today. Lovely segue there. <laughs> so we'll definitely um, begin getting into some of the, I guess, Burgundian counter propaganda.
0: Yes. So Josh will be talking about yeah. John the Fearless, uh, the second Valois Duke of Burgundy and uh, mm-hmm. murderer of Louis Duke of Orleans, uh, <laughs> just, just to set us off <laughs> on on, uh, on a biased foot already. Um, and. <laughs> And uh, I will be talking about um, an equally felonious uh, gentleman uh, whose name is Bernard Seventh Count of Armagnac, who is on the, the Orléans side of things, or the Armagnac side of things, and is eventually and eventually gets called because Bernard kind of takes over things. Similar to last episode, I'm going to be referring to Bernard by his title, Armagnac, just because I find mm-hmm. it easier to refer to people that way but josh you didn't have to call john the fearless burgundy i think just call him john the fearless because... i'm
3: probably going to do john the fearless for the most part sometimes john uh we don't have as many this episode i don't think
0: mm. yeah not as many johns this episode and also yeah. to prevent confusion with his father who's yeah or or his son <laughs> who are <both> there's a <laughs> lot of Burgundies. burgundy yeah. <laughs> yeah um but yeah we'll, we'll, we'll just dive straight into their lives from from, from uh where Me. we left off um, unless Eliza, you want to give us a little recap of what we've covered so far?
2: Oh God!
0: <laughs> oh God! Put it, putting on the putting on the spot here.
2: <laughs> I'm still um, waking up. I don't remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember very.
0: For context, for know, listeners, it is very early in the morning for Eliza. Well, it's not Have too you...
2: early. It's just woke up like 15 minutes ago, so my brain's yeah. still.
0: Oh, we, we we forgot to give you your your supreme regent, uh, line.
2: Oh well, um, I don't remember. You'd never sent it to me because you put it in the little box.
0: Um, who? Uh, oh, it was like who will be selected as the supreme, supreme regent supreme and regent. who will fall victims of the madness. I think that's what it was.
3: Oh, that's oh. good.
1: Just
0: do you
2: want to say it? <laughs> do that. you
0: want to say it now?
2: Okay. What was the end? Who will be selected (laughs) as the Supreme Regent and who will be...
0: Who will fall victim to the madness.
2: So that was really bad. We should have sliced in my previous one.
0: This is the great thing about podcast, Eliza, is you can say it over and over again as many times as you want. And I will cut out the times that you failed. Or we could just leave all of this in and it can just be a train wreck. Um, but I probably won't because we're five minutes into the recording and we need to get into the, the subject of the episode. Um, okay, Maybe okay. So, so I didn't again. like that
2: one. Just splicing the one from previous episodes that I like. Okay, so
0: so where we left off last episode, basically, uh, we've covered up until sort of the fourteen tens, uh, which is the period where uh, the Duke of Orleans gets murdered. His his son, who's quite young, takes over. He wants revenge against John yes. the Fearless, and a civil war has begun between the Burgundians and the Orleanists, also known as the Armagnacs, for reasons that we'll see in this episode. The the nice uncles, uh, John yes. of Berry and uh, John of Bourbon, are, are dying, and <laughs> the the Battle Badlands. of Agincourt occurs as, as Henry V comes sweeping in. But we're going to rewind, and we're going to go back to the beginning of... Our subject and we're going to start with my own guy uh, Bernard of Armagnac uh, because he's born first because this is a new name I'm gonna do an etymology because it's got with those etymologies so Bernard in f- uh, uh, or, uh, so it's Bernard uh, or Bernard in French um, and English or it's a uh, Bern- Bernat I think in uh, the local Gascon uh, dial- mm-hmm. dialect and this name comes from the Germanic elements burn, meaning a bear, and hard, mm. meaning uh, strong or sort of hardy. So he's a, he's a hard bear, is, is Bernard. Mm. Um, <laughs> he is a hard bear, yeah. So um, he was born in 1360. He was the younger of two sons of John II mm-hmm. of Armagnac, uh, called the Hunchback, John the Hunchback, and uh, Joan of Perigord. Parents are called John and Joan. Surprising nobody. Um, so uh, Bernard was originally not the heir, but the spare. So his bro- his elder brother, uh, John Third was supposed to succeed their father as Count of Armagnac. Uh, mm. not, not just Count of Armagnac, actually. Count of Armagnac, Fezensac, Rodez, and Charolais, and Viscount what? of Lomania and Auvillard. So... Yeah basically like a smattering of territories across the South of France. <laughs> so this family are major power players in this local region, um, less so up in Paris.
3: And uh, real quick though, that that does remind me that um, Bernard will not succeed as the Count of Charolais because Philip the Bold buys Charolais off of either John II or John III, I, I believe in the 1390s. Okay. Excellent <laughs> um, so that does become a Burgundian territory,
0: <laughs> so
3: um
0: foreshadowing uh, but uh, but the you know still big players in the south of France, the, the Armmanac were, were sort of considered more minor up north in Paris, but nonetheless, um, Bernard can trace his ancestry back to Saint. Louis through his grandmother, Ooh. Beatrice of Clermont, um, which Ooh. tracing your ancestry back to Saint. Louis has You're kind of coming. become the new. <laughs> It's become the new, like, tracing your ancestry back to Charlemagne. Uh. All it really means is that you're pretty inbred because everyone likes to keep it in the family. So the Armagnacs historically had a warlike temperament. Their their Gascon soldiers had a terrifying military reputation. Historically, I mean, way back when, they were part of English territory, um, mm. being in the left of France, I suppose. But in more recent history, they'd, they'd fought s- some small local wars, uh, with the Navarrese uh, just across the border, um, and also the rival Foix family, um, who have a great name, the Foix. Yeah, um, I do
1: like that name.
0: F-O-I-X. Uh, but Bernard, when he eventually became Count, would bring their penchant for violence up north into French royal
3: politics. So that's And uh, speaking of a penchant for (laughs) violence, uh, that brings us to my guy. John the Fearless was born in 1371 to Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, and his wife, Margaret of Flanders, who uh, we covered uh, two episodes back. Mm. So he was uh, just about 10 years younger than the Count of Armagnac and barely under a year older than Louis of Orléans. John spent most of his time bouncing between his father's various territories, uh, but he did spend most of his time as a part of his mother's household uh, in Dijon or in Artois. The historian Joseph Calmet, uh, in his description of John the Fearless, he begins it by... Just insulting John's appearance for a few lines. Let's see if I I, I can uh, pull this up real quick. We'll we'll get into it in enchanté, but I think I think he looks like a who from Whoville. Ah! Yeah, <laughs> a small dark man with blue eyes and a full face, an unfaltering glance and an uncompromising jaw, a massive squashed head. Ooh. He was coarse and devoid of charm.
1: Squashed
2: head.
3: So you know all fun things. Um, but then he does go on to say. Uh, He was brave, daring, wily, and his ambition knew no bounds.
2: Oh, I do love the word wily.
3: Yeah. His uh, slovenly appearance and his somewhat crude manners appealed especially to the common people. Yet he impressed everybody by the quickness of decision and strong determination which lay beneath the surface. Now, honestly, I think this is kind of unfair. Calmet is a a little bit of an older historian, um, so he's kind of... Yeah, he, he was writing in the 20th century, but he still kind of m- may fall prey to some of the more romantic tendencies that have mm. very much gotten into uh, Burgundian A 20th history. 20th century
0: French writer
3: falling victim to romantic tendencies I know. is unheard of. <laughs> what? So, for example, we do know now that John was actually able to you know, use splendor in the way that his father and his son did quite famously. He wasn't quite on their level, but he did Mm. know how to throw together an outfit uh, at the very least. Nice. But anyways, the first major event of his life, uh, we already covered. So we're we're not going to go into that much. But it was the 1385 double wedding at Cambrai, uh, where John married Margaret of Bavaria, while his sister, the other Margaret, Margaret of uh, Burgundy, married william of bavaria uh so there, ju- just if you're keeping track of ho- at home that's margaret of flanders his mother margaret mm-hmm. of burgundy his sister margaret of bavaria his wife and then he also has a daughter which is another of margaret course. of burgundy so yeah um but yeah so this wedding sealed an alliance between burgundy and flanders the bavarian counts of haino holland and zealand and then the Duchy of Brabant, and, and also not to mention uh,
0: mm. that the Bavarian's cousin, Isabeau of Bavaria, is ma- is married to Charles VI, the king around this time as well, or maybe slightly before.
3: Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, a little Out bit after, after yeah. I believe. I-, I think their wedding is 1388, but I'm not positive. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, uh, in contrast
0: to John the Fearless, we know very little about the first thirty years of uh, Bernard of Armagnac's life.
2: But well, we know he lived.
0: Yes, we know he existed, but he wasn't really in the spotlight because he wasn't the heir until thirteen ninety one, when when his elder brother John the Third died in battle without any heirs.
2: Oh yeah. wow! Yeah, so he was
0: off. He wasn't fighting in the Hundred Years' War. Ironically, um, he was off fighting in Italy alongside some allies that were teaming up against uh, the very powerful rising Duke of Milan, John Galeazzo Visconti, who we've mentioned a couple times uh, on this podcast. Oh, yeah. He's sort of a big rising power in in down in Italy. Um, so the rest of Italy is rather freaked out about how 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 big he was getting. So so John the Third of Armagnac. Mm went to went uh to like join a coalition of people against him and went off and died in battle with the Milanese army in Piedmont. John III left behind two daughters but mm-hmm. obviously they ha- they have the incorrect genitalia to rule uh, a county in France. So their uncle Bernard the 7th uh, takes precedence over them. Um so he inherits all of the Armagnac territories. Um except for Charolais as we as we mentioned because that is you now. And he uh, thanked Milan for killing his brother by extending an olive branch to them. Uh, he proposed that his sister, Beatrice, Ooh. marry Carlo Visconti, the Duke's youngest son. And uh, guess who also just married a Visconti? Who? Who could it Remember be? Remember who married the sexy Italian? No, Eliza's forgotten. The, the Duke of Orleans, <laughs> Louis, who married Valentina Visconti. Remember, oh she was God. like, she was really pretty, and um... <laughs> the uh, the queen the queen of France decided she was too pretty um and uh, she was the only uh, one who could soothe Charles the sixth and his madness so the queen sent her away because she was jealous. oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah remember yeah, that yeah, whole thing yeah
2: yeah yeah very much
0: oversimplifying it there but but you know jogs your memory that that this it's is her. This, this is the Italian witch um, so. At this point,
2: so I do like that. I would honor that. Yes, term we're saying that in that. a
0: salutary sel- way. Um, so at, at this point, um, uh, Orleon is, and, and uh, by the way, Veronica will have a lot more to say about Valentina next episode. She takes a very active role in sort of trying to avenge the the murder that that is that that happens, um, the murder of her, the husband, her husband. So at this point, Orleon is uh, rising in power against the Duke of Burgundy, while King Charles descends into his bouts of psychosis. Mm. Bernard of Armagnac's mm-hmm. aunt, uh, Joan, uh, Joan of Armagnac, is also the Duchess of Berry. Yes. Uh, she's the one who um, mm-hmm. lent her skirt to King Charles when he was about to get burned to death at the, the bout. Oh, ah, yes. Yeah, so she's Bernard's aunt. So so now, like, Berry, Orléans, the, Mil- uh, the, the family of Milan, the, the Visconti, they're all kind of inter- intertwined in marriage alliances. Tangled web of, of marriages, but, but, but yeah, basically means that, that these are, that this is a faction that is forming. Uh, it, it it sort of brings our current Armagnac, Bernard, into the orbit of French royalty um, and into the mm. side that generally is rising to challenge the Burgundians. Oh, okay. Actually, the, the Duke of Berry's eldest daughter, Bonne of Berry, Ends up marrying the count, of, uh, marrying Armagnac as well, so that binds it together even tighter. Mm. And yes, they are first cousins once removed. Um, so Bernard, he'd gone quite a while without marrying. He's in his mid thirties by now.
2: No, oh, yeah, damn.
0: But don't worry, Bon is in her mid twenties, so she's not too young. It's fine. Um, okay,
2: it's so not that. In fact, she's one. already
0: been married and had three children uh, oh, with nice. Count Amadeus the Seventh of Savoy
2: oh amadeus I yes like
0: sa- poor amadeus um he died of tetanus at 30 um Aww. and bon had sort of tried and failed to become regent of S-
3: savoy for her son and uh real quick you know who became regent instead Bon of bourbon okay. oh uh her and philip the bold oh. he was briefly regent oh, of course, regent as of well course because... philip the
0: bold had to stick his hand in in savoy uh, well. because
3: amadeus the eighth uh marries one of his daughters oh, of course yeah, so Amadeus yeah. the
0: 8th, the son of Amadeus 7th of Bond, is 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 too little. Um so there's a bit of a fight where uh, the two bonds basically the the mother-in-law
2: it out. and the
0: daughter-in-law are trying to figure out who's um yeah, who's 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 the top dog. Uh, so,
2: they bond it out. Okay, that's just the perfect <laughs> term.
0: Yeah. Um so this this was bringing Savoy on the verge of a civil war, but the Duke of Berry stepped in as the peacemaker, he, like, not
2: having that. He, remo-
0: he removed his daughter from the situation and he got Bon of Berry uh, remarried to the yeah. Count of Armagnac in 1393. So Bon, as um, I believe I mentioned in Berry's episode, Bon ends up having seven additional children uh, with Bernard of Armagnac. So she has 10 children overall, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and she manages to live to the age of 70, so so good for her. She'd sadly been cut off from her children, Savoy, and her father, mm-hmm. John of Berry left her with very little money because he was in a lot of debt by the end of his life. Um, but I like to think she kind of lived a humble, peaceful life down in the Pyrenees, uh, far away from the action of the Hundred Years' War. So her husband, the Count of Armagnac's existence, meanwhile, will be anything mm-hmm. but peaceful. Uh, but don't worry, the Armagnacs, they love a good war. Um
3: So yeah, he's going to be up doing lots of fighting in the north. And speaking of a good war, it's time to go crusading. So this crusade is being called in response to the Ottoman-Turkic Turkish uh, expansion Mm -hmm. into the Balkans. You know, uh, they kind of first go on, enter the scene in the... I believe it's 1299, and just in the century since they just exploded. They have not taken Constantinople yet, but they kind Ooh. of just scooted around it. They
0: have. Byzantine Empire is being useless. Yeah. They've just basically become like a turtle in Constantinople. Yeah.
3: So, yeah, at this point, uh, the Ottomans control, I'd say, most of Western Anatolia and a large portion of the Balkans. In the late 1380s, uh, they fight fight a big battle with the Serbs, uh, the Battle of Kosovo. Uh, They destroy the Serbs, um, and they kind of just keep expanding after that. So in the mid-1390s, the Ottomans and the Hungarians are kind of on each other's doorstep. Mm. So Sigismund of Luxembourg, who we briefly talked about uh, back in... Uh, when we were talking about um, Louis' attempt to marry into Hungary, mm. uh, he lost to Sigismund. So he's now, uh, Sigismund is the king of Hungary now. So he's calling for a crusade. While the peace of Lollingham is being negotiated, Philip the Bold, Louis of Orléans, and John of Gaunt are all making plans to lead a joint Anglo-French crusade, you know, in the name of peace and reconciliation. Mm. Um, And, you know, unified Christendom and whatnot. Uh, However, though, these plans fell through. John of Gaunt um, fell sick, I believe. And then Louis of Orleans thought to himself, man, you know, Philip being out of France, this would be a really good opportunity for me to consolidate power. Mm -hmm. And then he dropped out and then Philip the Bold thought to himself, wow, I can't let Louis stay in France by himself. So he dropped out too. Uh, so none of the preliminary leaders would end up going, and so it left to John the Fearless to lead a pre- predominantly Burgundian uh, French expedition. So um, the crusade began in Burgundy, of course, um, and then they traveled uh, through the Holy Roman Empire and then uh, met up with Sigismund in Hungary and then kind of traveled down the Danube a little bit more. In uh, 1396, the Franco-Burgundian army and the Hungarian army venture forth into Bulgaria. They end up fighting the Ottomans by the town of Nicopolis, uh, modern-day Nicopol, just south of the Danube. The battle began with, you know, the Ottomans lining up nicely. The French knights charge into the fray. Uh, They are initially successful. They kind of break the first Ottoman line But then as they're kind of just starting to catch their breath, they see basically Ottoman forces converging on them from three directions. (laughs) So a successful flanking maneuver had cut them off from the Hungarians. They were surrounded and basically entirely destroyed. And while they're getting whooped by the Ottomans, another detachment of the Ottoman army is whooping the Hungarians. So uh, it's a disaster. Just about all of the soldiers were killed in the battle. A small portion of the French leadership was kept alive for ransom, which did include John the Fearless. Mm -hmm. And the Burgundian prince, he made his way back to France in 1398. So two years later. Two years after he left and despite the utter failure of the crusade he was welcomed back as a hero and a martyr of course
0: mm. of course yeah <laughs> so, we so we, we we occasionally get a lot of sort of uh pushback about how we guillotined louis the ninth um <laughs> and <laughs> our reason is is because he, he he makes such a big deal about crusading he went on two crusades he lost both of them quite yeah. Dism- yeah. quite dismally. Um, did not perform well at all. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of, you know, rulery stuff he did outside of that, which is quite good. But yeah. the, the that being his main thing, we thought it really falls flat, so we guillotine him. Um, yeah. But yeah, we've had... Uh, oh yeah, spoiler that for Josh, if Josh isn't caught up. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's this weird... It's this weird thing that is almost like... Still, it's still happening today. People are mesmerized by like the mystique of this person who went on crusade, even though the
3: the premise it
1: was a of, fail.
3: It was a failure. Yeah, you yeah. you have. To-
0: I mean, hey, I live
3: in Saint Louis. I, I there's a statue of him not far. Oh yes, yeah, the um
0: the the s- uh, statue that's very much celebrated by the wrong kinds of people. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we we definitely touched on that in Louis Night's <laughs> episode. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah but the uh, whether or not a crusade is successful kind of
3: doesn't really matter. Um, and Yeah, it's just going on crusade. I mean, yeah. the the House of Burgundy was very much um, kind of built up uh, from a lot of the prestige based on and that. And if you die,
0: it's a one-way ticket to heaven, so. Yeah. yeah.
3: But yeah, like, uh, for example, John's son will spend uh, most of his life planning a crusade that he never ends up going on. Yeah, there's there's just something about it that I guess people are like, oh, that's good, I guess. Yeah.
1: Mm.
0: yeah. Oh dear, this is gonna and then this is gonna this is gonna go on and on and on. Um. <laughs>
3: oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, anyways, uh, John spent the years between his return to France and his father's death act- acting for the most part as his father's representative in Dijon on the Ducal Council, but then he did occasionally join his, uh, join Philip the Bold in Paris for various events. Mm. Um, so when Philip the Bold died in 1404, John the Fearless became the Duke of Burgundy. Mm. However, he did not become the Count of Flanders because his mother was still alive, and technically they were always her counties. She's yeah. Margaret uh, III.
0: Margaret the Black being Margaret II. Eliza. yeah,
1: yeah.
3: yeah. FYI. <laughs> yeah. And she lives a crazy life, Margaret the. Black, oh yeah, but, uh, that's on. We of have hope, a we have a Patreon
0: episode where we went into it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. cool.
3: Yeah, I have a supplemental episode nice. on her.
0: Oh, I should listen to that. See if there's um, stuff we missed because there's definitely stuff we missed. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but John didn't have to wait long to become Count of Flanders because his mother Margaret died the next year. Yeah. Uh, and then when that happened, the final pieces of the there there was a pretty complex Burgundian inheritance scheme, and then now they can all fall into place. So when his father was alive, John the Fearless was the Count of Nevers.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: And so he passed Nevers to his youngest brother, Philip, uh, and from his mother got the counties of Flanders, Artois, and Burgundy. His second brother, Anthony, is now the uh, Duke of Limburg, and he was named Joan of Brabant's successor. Mm. Uh, so he uh, he ends up handing Rethel, which he kind of... He hel- held the same way that John did. Mm-hmm. John didn't really control Navarre, and Anthony didn't really control Rethel because Philip the Bold didn't want to let go of any power ever, <laughs> even to his son.
0: It's just honorary. Um,
3: kind exactly. of like the du- the
0: like like the Prince of Wales doesn't control Wales, like
3: if that mm. kind yeah. of thing. And then Philip also gets uh, these various territories in Champagne, uh, just known as the Champagne lands. Nice. Um, <laughs> Watch that,
2: being like, oh yes, I own the champagne
3: lands. Look at them sparkle. (laughs) They were quite sparkly. Uh, They were some pretty rich trading Oh yeah, everyone wants champagne. Yeah. Uh, The new generation of Burgundians was matched by a new generation of Bavarians coming into power. Around the same time that Philip dies, um, Albert of Bavaria, who is the Count of Haino, Holland, and Zealand, died. And mm. so now John's brother-in-law, William, is the new Count of Haino-Holland in Zealand. Mm. And as well, uh, this happened a little bit before, but then John, uh, William's brother, another John, is made the Prince Bishop of Liège. Mm. So all of these territories in the Low Countries, I could list them all off again, but uh, there's there's so many of them at this point. But <laughs> needless to say, the Burgundians and the Bavarians hold a very... Hold a large portion of the Low Countries, uh, kind of in a dynastic alliance, I would call it.
0: Yeah. Mm.
3: Um, Basically, if you if you if
0: you're in France and you go northeast in any direction, you're in either Burgundian territory or a territory that's allied to the Burgundians.
3: Yeah, yeah. And uh, John will need this alliance because um, while things are kind of going his way in the Low Countries, he's facing some major pushback from the Duke of Orléans. Mm. After Philip the Bull died, uh, Louis wasted no time in seizing power. And so when John first came to Paris' as Duke of Burgundy, he found that his father's allies were being excluded from power Mm. and Orléans were replacing them. They were dominating the Mm -hmm. royal council, the royal administration, the households of the king, queen, and Dauphin. So Orléans are everywhere and Burgundians are out of power.
0: Yeah, um, we, we we did kind of uh, rush over this period uh, last time you were on, Josh, but there was really like mm-hmm. this period be- between Philip the Bold dying and John the Fearless getting his shit together, where it it looks like mm-hmm. Orléans was going to completely take over. The, sh- the shoe oh, was completely yeah, on the yeah. other foot.
3: But it wasn't all bad for the Burgundians, because the reason that John is coming to Paris... Right now is to celebrate uh, another dual marriage, a double wedding, mm. uh, between his daughter, Margaret of Burgundy, uh, to the Dauphin, Louis of Guienne, mm. and his son, Philip, uh, who's the future Duke Philip the Good and the current Count of Charolais, uh, to the French Princess Michelle. Mm. Um, but... Uh, you know, this trip to the capital, this is, like, all fun and happy, you know, enjoying some nice weddings. Uh, his next trip to the capital will not be quite as lighthearted. Mm. Um, you know, this is still the period before he's getting his shit together. So Orléans is appropriating more land, more money, and is working to exclude the Burgundians mm. even more than he was before. Yes. Um, So John is kind of on the outside. So he sees this and he positions himself as a champion of reform. Mm. um, Someone who wants to secure the public good, who wants to reign in corruption, all these good things. Mm. Um, So he's becoming very popular with the people. Mm. And so um, Louis actually goes a little bit too far here. He Mm. gets the king to name him the Duke of Normandy which mm-hmm. a lot of people really did not want to happen because mm-hmm. that's in the past. It is basically ev- either been held by the English Kings or by the heir to the French crown.
1: Mm-hmm. So
3: mm-hmm. someone who's not the heir being named uh, Duke of Normandy is kind of a big that's, deal.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, kind of nice. So the King decides to summon uh, the nobles of France to, to discuss reform. Uh, so reforming how gifts are made Gifts of mm. land, gifts of money, how the administration functions. And the Duke of Burgundy sees this and he's like, okay, now's my chance to really come on, come mm. into the scene. Um, early on in his reign, he makes like this big fuss about um, refusing to support this tax that's been proclaimed. Yeah. And uh, the Duke of Berry writes to his mother, Margaret, saying, um, John is being very unprofessional right now. Yes. You can tell that he's new to his territories and doesn't know what he's doing.
2: Complaining to his um,
3: mother. But, but yeah, he, exactly. He tells on him to his mother. But that's like, kind of... Mi- John of Berry misunderstood what Burgundy was doing. Because what he was doing was he was very consciously seeing how unpopular the Orléans were. And mm. setting himself up as the opposition. So now he comes to Paris with a small army, um, as you do. Which, <laughs> yeah, just a small one. Which, admittedly, sparks a bit of a crisis. Yeah. Um, so I'm
0: actually I'm I'm, I'm from actually my- going to uh, Paris in a week and a half, and I'm I'm thinking about Ooh. taking my small army, but I'm not sure. You yeah. should. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, just like really two sure, thousand men. Well. <laughs> you know, just a few. <laughs> See if there's room in the Airbnb.
2: <laughs>
0: oh yeah, <laughs> rent out a <of> barracks. <laughs> <laughs> see the Bastille.
3: They haven't used the Bastille in yeah. a while. Surely it's free. Oh, that's yeah. a good point. I don't know what happened to it, but um, <laughs> yeah. well, we'll actually see something happen to it uh, later on this episode. Not to spoil anything. <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah. So he comes with a small army. Uh, in my opinion, he's kind of recreating what Philip the Bold did. He's trying to force a settlement on Orleans. However. Orléans and the Queen... I don't know if you can hear that. Winston is uh, scratching himself yeah, right I now. Hear. I like it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so... Uh,
2: it is a dog. Uh,
3: Orléans and the Queen decide to flee Paris for the nearby royal castle of Milan. And at Milan, they have a bunch of money that... Orleans has basically been hoarding for years now from all of the taxes and whatnot. So they call for the Dauphin to join them there. So a bunch of men led by Louis of Bavaria, the queen's brother, go to grab the Dauphin, and bring him to Milan. However, the other nobles of France were not notified of this. And so from their point of view, the young prince, who right now was holding royal authority because his father was uh, mentally ill, he was in one of his episodes at the time, so the person who's basically acting as the king has just been kidnapped. They don't know what happened to him. Yeah. Um, eventually it kind of comes out that like, oh, he's it's being concerning. brought to Milan.
2: At the time, it's quite concerning.
3: Exactly. John the Fearless hears about this. Uh, he learns that the Dauphin's being brought to Milan. He's not quite to Paris yet, but once he hears, mm. he like, he he rushes uh, to intercept the Dauphin the next day as quickly as possible. And yeah. so he goes with a cow. Cap- Company of Cavalry, and catches up with uh, the Dauphin and Louis of Bavaria about halfway between Paris and Milan. Mm. Um, Louis of Bavaria is basically like, what are you doing? And John essentially goes, what, are you going to oppose me and my large group of soldiers right now? Um, but, you know, okay. to make things a bit more, I guess, palatable to everyone, he, he does ask the Dauphin what he wants to do. And apparently, you know, the Dauphin, who I believe is like 11 right now, um, is like crying. He doesn't know what's going on. And he's like, I just want to go home. So the Duke of Burgundy brings the Dauphin back to Paris. And this act was actually met with approval by many of the other lords of France who did not like the fact that Orléans was taking the Dauphin away from Paris. Mm -hmm. So he's met at the gate gates of paris by bourbon and barry um, Mm -hmm. and a bunch of other important people once this happens uh burgundy is set up in paris orleans is set up in uh milan and there's kind of a propaganda war going back and forth where they both Mm -hmm. accuse each other of kidnapping the dauphin and they're Mm -hmm. both also calling for more soldiers uh it looks like a civil war might get spark real quick. Um, but then Barry and the queen both negotiate a compromise, a settlement. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, that does not, however, end the enmity between Orléans and Burgundy. And if anything, things are just getting started. Uh, so Orléans is doing basically everything he can to exclude Burgundy from power. So he's making alliances with a lot of the princes bordering Burgundian territories uh, such as the Dukes of Lorraine, Bar, and Helder's, and you know we kind of talked about Helder's a bit uh, last week, or I, I guess last time I recorded with y'all. Yeah. But um, you know he's kind of he's the big opposition to Burgundy in the Low Countries. You know he's fighting against Brabant. He's fighting against Burgundian allies. Mm. He's doing his best to prevent Burgundy from. A- acquiring more land yeah. in the low countries, basically. Um, and he's also allying with the cities of uh, Toul and Liège, which we'll get into a little bit later on. If you'll remember John's brother-in-law, John of Bavaria was the Bishop of Liège. Louis is not a- allying himself with the Bishop. He's allying himself with the town. Mm. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, Louis had also acquired the Duchy of Luxembourg and several territories mm. in Champagne he kind of snatched Luxembourg out from right under Philip the Bold. He had been administering mm-hmm. it for the past year. And the, then Louis basically just bought um, bought it is out it from really? the guy who is currently holding it. So he's acquiring all these territories around Burgundy. He's trying to hem them in. Um, in some of his territories, he actually implements taxes with the explicit goal of harming Burgundian commerce. Yep. So... Uh, like the trade links between Italy and the Low Country, he's doing everything he can to make that as he's like taxing those trade routes. Mm. He's kind of harassing the traders. He's interfering with lines of communication between the Low Countries and the two Burgundies, the Low Countries and Paris, Burgundy and Paris. And he mm. even launches some expeditions from Luxembourg into the Duchy of Brabant to try and steal some territory away from John's brother Anthony. Everywhere John is being outflanked by his cousin. He did have a nominal voice in the royal government, uh, but Louis always made sure that none of his programs or ideas ever got off the ground. Mm. Under Philip the Bold, Burgundy had been sustained by royal revenues, making up like I think a third of Burgundian revenue at times. Yeah.
0: And also um, something crazy, like one-sixth of the treasury was going straight yeah, to Burgundy's pocket. Something like that.
3: Yeah. Mm. Um, that, was at, that was at the peak of yeah. Philip's uh, money grubbing. It, it wasn't always mm-hmm. that much, but um, he was getting a lot of money and all of a sudden that dried up. And it's not even like, <clears throat> it's not even things, just things like Philip's corruption that ends up going away. It's like necessary things like, for example, money specifically to maintain border garrisons against mm-hmm. like English pirate attacks. That money's mm. not coming in anymore. And other, like, rights that had been specifically given to the Dukes of Burgundy, um, mm. like, some rights over royal taxation were now being diverted to Paris. Oh, and okay. from Paris, they were then diverted to Orléans. Yeah. Mm. So, kind of, all of this comes to say that Louis wasn't only trying to remove Burgundian influence from the Royal Council, he was trying to remove it from France. mm And I say all this not to justify what's about to happen, but to explain it. Um, The murder of Louis of Orleans was an act of desperation more than greed. There was a lot of greed involved, I will admit, but... um, (laughs) Louis was legitimately a danger to the whole Burgundian project. Yeah. And so this was not simply John saying, I want power in Paris, I'm gonna kill you. Yeah. It's John basically his back is up against a wall and he's like, I okay. need to do something.
0: And this is a this is a yeah. Burgundian project that's like decades in the making, and like mm-hmm. John's father spent so much time and energy putting all these alliances together, and putting all these pieces together, building this Lego castle. Um yeah. that now this more handsome, charismatic cousin, oh, Louis of Orleans, is just about to knock over. <laughs> yeah. And
3: they're
2: like, we're not having that.
3: Yeah. Like there there are even small things. Like, for example, Louis made one of his allies the Admiral of France. So while oh. John is in trade negotiations with the English for a treaty of neutrality for Flanders, the Admiral is using Flemish ports <laughs> to attack British shipping. Yeah. It's like, um, well now I got a boat there. So yeah. huh. Exactly. <laughs> we we went into this a little bit last time, but um, yeah. But now we're seeing it from the other perspective. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's um it's the scandal of the century. Mm. um it john is. arranges for louis of orleans to be murdered in the streets yeah and initially suspicion doesn't fall on john the fearless but a few days later uh several of the royal princes were meeting at the duke of barry's hotel and while there they uh receive a visit from the provost of paris who requests permission mm-hmm. to search their parisian residences and all of the other dukes are like yeah sure fine uh we don't care let's just find whoever did this but then John's yes. face must have, <laughs> says, you know, it looks like he's a seen the ghost
2: as a ghost.
3: <laughs> yeah, because right after that, uh, the Duke of Anjou pulls him and the Duke of Berry aside and says, "Are you involved with this?"
2: And he's like, "Uh."
3: John promptly confesses, and he, basically he says, "Like I was inspired by the devil to do this," you know, a- a like he's of kind of. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah it's like when in doubt go for the devil
3: he, he's caught off guard he c- kind of just confesses yeah not not the best move at the time in all honesty but um one of my favorite uh stories about john the fearless happens right now mm. because as he's leaving he brushes pot by the duke of bourbon and the duke of bourbon says where are you going in such a rush and john just shouts out oh i need to use the bathroom
2: <laughs> yeah. That
3: Je vais aux toilettes. <laughs> yeah i mean hey it, it'll get you out of any situation right true mm-hmm. true so the next day he goes back to the duke of barry's hotel because there's another meeting of the royal prince's planned but he's turned away <laughs> at the door so he decides <laughs> you're not allowed to <laughs> for, this for party. some reason <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: Oh, I love Barry. He's
2: gone!
0: <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Barry's such a, like, a bit of a
3: Regina oh, George. Barry's like, you're not invited. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Go away.
3: So he ends up fleeing Paris that day after he's turned away um but then all of a sudden you know as he's leaving paris the orleanist admiral of france is following him out with like a company of men because he wants to arrest him on a boat yeah, yeah. oh on, <laughs> on horses you know i mean i i'm sure he'd just be held in a boat, boat you know yeah
2: on land
0: <laughs> i don't have any authority unless it's on a boat so we're just gonna
3: drag this boat <laughs> yeah
2: it justifies oh, my a, decisions
3: yeah. that's a good move uh i i bet the coast guard's gonna oh, start man. doing that so, so john beats the admiral back to artois and basically well, other i than... mean he was dragging a boat so <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah so other than the boat uh there's no immediate response to uh his assassination mm-hmm. um so basically uh t- to sum things up richard vaughn who's an amazing historian on the Dukes of Burgundy. If you're going to read one thing on them, it should be Vaughn, which admittedly the one thing is four different biographies, but that's beside the point. Um, Vaughn writes that the French princes, quote, who formed the French government and represented the French King proved utterly incapable with dealing with the crisis. The assassination of the brother of the King by the Duke of Burgundy shattered and demoralized them. Instead of uniting, it divided them. While the shock paralyzed them, the knowledge that there was considerable public support for John's deed prolonged and deepened their inaction. Mm. So basically what he's saying there is these princes do not know what to do, but while they're scrambling, John is incredibly popular with the common people of Paris, and the Duke of Orléans was incredibly unpopular. Mm. And so this kind of does lead to the basis of how John initially justifies what he did. Um, He basically calls on the public hatred of Orléans, of Orléans' government, of that government's corruption. And he Mm. builds up this incredibly long, academically rigorous for the time work. Mm. And so he returns to Paris a few months later, and then rather than asking for a pardon from the king, whose brother he had killed, by the way, Mm. uh, he defiantly justified it. And so the justification of the Duke of Burgundy is a four hour long oration presented by the theologian Jean Petit. And basically, Orléans' reputation gets dragged through the dirt. Every scandal he was ever involved with is brought up, Um, you know, all Although, even though every scandal he's ever involved with was brought up, there is no mention of an affair between him and the queen. So, yeah. you know, it probably didn't That's happen. Yeah, That's my yeah. point of view.
0: That that, that was probably um, a later thing. Yeah. yeah.
3: The first mention of an affair actually dates, I believe, to the 1420s. Which makes sense in light of what mm-hmm. will happen in the future um yeah not to spoil anything but re
0: a certain king of england saying that a certain king of france is illegitimate mm. but we'll
3: yeah get to that. another time <laughs> so the, the the big claim of the justification is that louis of orleans was a tyrant and he was you know maybe he was trying to kill his brother and take his place maybe he was trying to rule as like a shadow king from the royal council um mm. You know, speaking of, you know, Italians uh, going up earlier, you know, um, Italy is considered is a, a land of witchcraft at yeah. the time. So, you know, there there were accusations that she was the one uh, to poison or bewitch him.
0: Their food has too much flavor. It is yeah.
3: witchcraft. <laughs> um, but John, um, just as this is happening, he's kind of justifying the deed. He secures a royal pardon, by the way. Um, And so it looks like he's winning. This yeah. is always just so bananas to me how, like, they're able to,
0: like, out of, I guess, necessity, because the people are so for John, the royal family mm-hmm. just able to, like, have this cognitive dissonance to not necessarily forgive, but let him get away with kinslaying, which is, like, historically yeah. has been, like, the worst thing a person could do.
3: I mean, yeah. Like, what are you going to do when John's in there in power? But he won't be in there forever because events in the Low Countries are taking his attention. His brother-in-law, John of Bavaria, the Prince Bishop of Liège, had been facing uh, a rebellion for the past few years. And that rebellion was supported by Louis of Orleans. Um, So John of Bavaria had led soldiers on behalf of both Philip the Bold and John the Fearless for a few times. And so now it is kind of time for John to return the favor. At this point, John of Bavaria is very much like struggling. He's basically lost all of Liege except for one town. And that town is currently under siege. Mm -hmm. So um, John, alongside his other brother-in-law, William of Bavaria, led an army into Liege and they crushed the rebels at the Battle of Oti. And it's either at the Battle of Oti or the Battle of Nicopolis that John earns his cognomen, Samper, or the fearless. Mm. But with John out of Paris, uh, some half-hearted measures to punish him were taken by his enemies. However, you know, they didn't really get much of a chance to really move against Mm. John because he returns triumphant with with his massive army. I believe the number was around 20,000 men. Um, he's returning to Paris in force as a conquering hero, basically. Mm -hmm. And the opposition collapses. It's like a Julius Caesar move. Oh yeah. And then around this time, uh, most of the anti-Burgundians, including Queen Isabeau and the Dauphin, uh, flood to Tours while John takes control of the capital. Um, This situation kind of proves a little unstable, no one really likes the idea of the uh, royal family being away from Paris. Mm. So there's, there's a lot of pressure on John to reach a compromise. Meanwhile, there's also pressure on the anti-Burgundians to reach a compromise because, you know, what are they going to do? Just hide out in Tour forever? I mean, it's a nice place. Some of them will try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. A reconciliation does get arranged at the Cathedral of Chate. Um, and this is the first of many sham pieces to happen over the next few years Mm. um in my show i think every episode from like the past like eight or so i say like and now a piece is arranged that doesn't really solve can we
0: skim over them i find them exhausting (laughs) they happen over and over again oh
3: dear yeah so we we don't get into any of uh (laughs) we, we don't have to get into them but um Uh, I am going to read this quote from uh, Jonathan Sumption, who writes about this first piece, which can really be applied to any of them. (laughs) Uh, He wrote about it that John, quote, had accepted no punishment for his crime. He had conceded nothing. John declared that his satisfaction was shared by everyone else in the cathedral, but he can hardly have believed that himself. This piece was a travesty and had been imposed on the king's weak, divided, and frightened counselors and they had in turn imposed it on the young princes of the House of Orléans. Mm. The discontent was audible in the cathedral.
0: And Yeah, and you've got all, all this happening while we've got, you know, in the corner, we've got King Charles VI not knowing what's going on. We've got mm-hmm. Valentina just burning with rage. And we've got... Oh, she's dead by now. Oh, yeah, she is dead by now. Yeah, I, I forgot. Oh, well, she she burns oh, yeah, with yeah, rage I... uh,
3: for about a yeah. year after Louis dies, and then then she dies um yeah, yeah. like the, yeah it's the the 14-year-old Charles of Orléans and the 11-year-old yeah. Dauphin yeah
0: and uh Charles of Orléans has, has a few brothers as well who will also mm-hmm. be involved um but back to Armagnac yeah what's he been doing um <laughs> so he's definitely uh, a known quantity at the French court uh, but it's not until after the assassination of Orléans and after the mm-hmm. successive failed pieces uh, that Armagnac eventually gets drawn into the escalating uh, conflict. He's going to become such an integral part of military maneuvers in this war that the Orléanists mm-hmm. end up being more commonly known as the Armagnacs, um, and the war Ooh. as the Armagnac Burgundian Civil War. Um, oh. So it's kind of synonymous. Like you could you could you can search up Orléan Burgundian Civil War, or you could search up you know Armagnac Burgundian Civil War. They're the same mm-hmm. thing. Uh, but basically, the oh, okay. Armagnacs and Orleanists are, at least in this period, the same thing. So part of the reason for this is because of Armagnac's formidable army. The Armeniac The Armeniac yeah. And <laughs> and because he had a lot of wealth as well, whereas uh, the Orleanists are in a lot of debt, because they've just been basically kneecapped by John the Fearless. Um, mm. And he thus had a lot of control. He became a major decision-maker alongside Duke Charles of Orléans, uh, who is okay. still a young teenager. He's still finding his feet as a ruler while he's having mm. to deal with the fact that his dad got and... murdered. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So he needs sort of extra guidance and, and strength. And Armagnac definitely steps in in a big way. He has, like, a big personality. Mm. Uh, he's this big, like, tough guy. And um, he he compels Charles also um, to marry his daughter uh, who his daughter is also called bon as are all the women on this side of the family it, of it's, bon is the margaret of the orleanists <laughs> so oh, this yeah. is little bon bon yeah. of armagnac and yes they are cousins several times over at this point um are the duke of orleans and, and, but who and isn't? Bon Jr. yeah so by this point in uh 1410 opinion among the french lords Has turned decidedly against John the Fearless. Obviously, in contrast to how the people feel, the lords are almost unanimously against John. Mm. Even the ones who aren't explicitly allies of Orleans and a bunch of these lords, including the Duke of Berry and the Capetian Counts of uh, Alençon and Clermont. uh, By the way, Clermont is Bourbon's son, and he will be Bourbon soon. Um, But they Mm. come together. uh, and they signed the League of Jean. And this is the point at which we can definitively say that a civil war has begun.
3: So it begins with uh, several campaigns being launched into Picardy, Champagne, and the Ile-de-France by the League of Jean. Uh, Then John the Fearless responded with a few campaigns of his own. It kind of goes back and forth. There's a piece, the peace breaks down. There's another piece that breaks down. But the one thing I kind of want to talk about at this point in the Civil War is that the Duke of Burgundy gathers a Burgundian royal army. And he mm-hmm. leads it to besiege the Duke of Berry at his capital at Bourges. And this is the part where the Duke of Barrie is like, no, not my castle. Ah, yeah,
1: yes. th- th- this is Good exactly
3: that part. part. The Dauphin isn't super happy with this. You know, he doesn't want yeah. this war to be going on. He's starting to grow up a bit more. Now he's like a young teenager as opposed to a full on child. So he manages to arrange a peace between Barry and Burgundy. Um, and as this piece is being sealed, the Dukes meet in person and they're separated by like a wooden barrier. They're both in armor, you know, like the distrust mm. between the two is like, it, 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 this is, this barrier is like the physical embodiment of that. Mm. And as they part, the Duke of Berry turns to John the fearless and with tears in his eyes, he says, fair nephew and godson, when your father, my dear brother was living, there was no need for any barriers between us Mm. to which the Duke of Burgundy only replied curtly. It is not my fault, (laughs) which let's be real. It, it, it was his fault. Um, I love Barry. (laughs) Right. Like I, I, in my early episodes, when I was covering Philip the bold, he really kind of fell into the shadows, but Mm. you know, he, he's a major player in the civil war. Yeah. I mean, he's the only uncle left at this point. Oh, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And and he he really has so much personality that comes down uh through like what survives. He, he does, yeah. Mm. But uh it's not enough uh to keep him in power at this point mm. because 1411 and 1412 John the Fearless is at the height of his power. Mm. But, you know, going into 1413 the dauphin like I said, he's now a teenager rather than a child. He's beginning to pull away from his overbearing and power hungry father in law. Mm. Oh my god, I forgot I forgot he'd married Margaret. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> this so twisted um, up. <laughs>
3: Oh, yeah. John basically attempts to use um, a meeting of the Estates General and his popularity with the people to reinforce his grasp on power. The Estates get called in 1413, and they're meeting mostly to talk about, like, financial reform, raising taxes, cutting costs, that stuff. However, around this time... Things start to get out of hand on the streets of Paris. A revolt known as the Cabochia breaks out. Mm. This is named for one of its leaders, uh, Simon Caboche, who mm-hmm. was a f- uh, he, he was a flayer, which is kind of a trade related to mm. the butchers. And the butchers mm. were basically this big, powerful guild that lined up behind John the Fearless. Yeah. and
0: you know they've got sharp implements. And the prepared Yeah, g- they are the, the...
3: strong men used to using knives. Yeah.
0: Flayer sounds scary. This guy sounds right? scary. Uh,
3: the, the French, I believe, is like or something like that, mm. which, you know, it, it's imposing in its own way, but, you know, Flayer. Mm. Uh, you could also say Skinner, yeah. which is, I would say, just as imposing. Skinner! Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, this revolt in many ways kind of looks like a precursor to the French Revolution, and at one point, Ooh. Parisians attempt to storm the Bastille. Yes.
0: Um, <laughs> so I, I wrote in the I wrote in the comments of these notes. We're certainly learning on this podcast yeah. that the revolutionary attitude of Parisians goes back far further than the revolution. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
3: it, it sure does, because um, you know we can like there are so many ways we can connect this to the French Revolution. Um, I do it a lot in my episode on the revolt. But we also shouldn't ignore the fact that this fits very neatly in with you know Parisian revolts at the time. So you have like Etienne Marcel oh, and yeah. uh, Charles the Bad when they use the Estates General to stir up some uh, chaos, and then you have like the Mayaton and Arel revolts. Uh, you have basically everything going on in Flanders um, over the past over the thirteen hundreds. So. Like, there's a lot of similarities to the French Revolution, and it's fun to say, oh, they stormed the Bastille, oh, there was a reign Mm. of terror, oh, there was a counter-revolution.
0: By the time we get to the actual revolution, we're going to be like, well, this is just old hat now. (laughs) Exactly, yeah.
3: Yeah, this stuff is built on a base. It's part of a historical tradition. Mm. But yeah, uh, during this revolt, though, the Dauphin, he sees some of John the Fearless's household knights intermingled with the crowd at one point when they like storm his palace um Mm. so he accused the duke of burgundy of using the mob to control him which (laughs) i would argue is partially true it's entirely true that's what he's been doing this entire time to everyone (laughs) so it it starts out as true but he kind of loses control of course the mob um Mm. because yeah exactly after like the first month or so of the revolution the duke of barry the duke of burgundy basically loses all control of what's going on and he's more or less at the he's the victim of circumstances as much as the dofis actually i'm no he's not but um (laughs) he is he is being swept along as much as the dofis i will say um He's just like, the whole time, he's like, it's not my fault. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. He's telling himself that over and over again. It's not my fault. But, you know, yeah, it, it, it's not true. But, like, you know, he's not in control anymore. He's like, if I say
2: it enough times, it means that it's true. But
3: Eliza, Satan made him do it, so. Yeah, yeah exactly. He was inspired by the yeah. devil. John the Fearless is a man who will never back down and will never admit any wrongdoing if you haven't already picked up on that. Yeah. So he, so,
0: so John basically yeets himself out of Paris, being like, it's not my fault, it's not my fault, it's yeah. not my fault the entire time, back to Burgundy.
3: <laughs> yeah, so uh, the Dauphin eventually manages to raise um, a group of loyal men of Paris. At one point, you know, the city council of Paris is being threatened by um, one of the Cabochia rebels. Oh, yeah. And he responds back that, you know, there's just as many smiths as there are butchers in Paris. <laughs> so basically, you know, the Dauphin finds people where he can push back against the the rebels. Mm-hmm. John loses control, and it seems that the Armagnacs are about to come back to Paris with an army. Uh, the Dauphin has already kind of re- restored order in the streets, but now the Armagnacs are coming back. So John, he's, he's like, oh God, it's not my fault, but they're going to they're say it's my fault. Uh, so he flees Paris, um, and he returns to his territories. And now... Uh, the Armagnacs are in charge. So the
0: Dauphin is like, good riddance. And then he turns around and sees the Armagnac army coming in. He's like, he's oh, like, oh God. there's another one. God <laughs> so,
2: oh, damn it. Just let me rule in
0: peace. Yeah. And yeah, the poor, the poor little Dauphin, um, he, he kind of gets, uh, oh, Arm Armagnac has this thing where he just kind of, he, he did this with Orléans and now he's doing it with the Dauphin where he just kind of comes in with this big, strong, Man, energy, and he just kind of bowls over the manly
2: man,
1: the
0: the, the, the young the young wee boy. Um, so oh. the so the Armagnacs were now the ones using royal resources to their benefit. They've got the treasury now, um, and they launched a campaign into John's oh, territory. So everyone has
2: the bloody territory, yeah. the treasury. I mean, but the royal family.
0: Yeah, pretty much. So yeah, he yeah launches uh, an, an attack into Burgundian territory. The shoes on the other foot. shoes on the other foot. <laughs> And uh, despite the use of war resources, this was still a uh, sort of a partisan expedition as the army marched under the four lions of Armagnac rather than the fleur-de-lis of France. Um, So yeah, their bread is being buttered very much on the other side. It's a very buttery piece of
3: bread. Um, (laughs) However, though, like at Bourges, uh, the Dauphin doesn't really want this civil war to be happening. He wants... Both sides to make peace and to start listening to him. So he arranges another compromise uh, outside the city of Arras, which is being, you know, put under siege by the Armagnacs. And so although John is still being excluded from power, his lands are no longer a threat. Mm. And then uh, upon returning to Paris, the Dauphin finally manages to dislodge the Armagnacs from power. And for the rest of his life, he does hold on to power in France. The Armagnacs... They're out of power, but they're still present in Paris yeah. and they have a share of the government. Yeah, yeah. Uh, however, John the Fearless, you know, they're still out of power. They are on the outside looking yeah. in. Hey, that's what I called my episode on the. This period. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, they, they, they are not in power. And yeah. notably, the Dauphin sends Margaret of Burgundy away and ostentatiously takes up a lover. Uh, So when John and the Dauphin are working on their peace to kind of finalize the initial peace made at Arras, one of John's requests is that he take back his daughter.
0: (laughs) Take back your cousin wife. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, the Dauphin, yeah, has control of Paris uh, for the rest of his life, although as we will soon learn, the rest of his life is not very long. Um, But, uh, yeah, there's once again a, a brief attempt to reconcile in 1415. Um, And this is in the face of shock and horror, an invasion of France by the English. But this time, it's the big one. It's the Henry V one, the Agincourt one. It's going to go very well for France. (laughs) So it's finally time for us to talk about the Agincourt campaign, or at least the lead up to the Battle of Agincourt itself. We'll get further into the battle and the rest of this war in our two remaining Regency of Madness episodes, as it extends beyond the deaths of John the Fearless and Bernard of Armagnac. Um, and these two aren't actually present at the Battle of Agincourt itself. So, so we, we'll get into Battle of Agincourt in our next two episodes, but not now. Um, okay. So Henry V, he invades Normandy, uh, but rather than doing a chevalier and trying to cut through to Paris he takes a different approach by sort of systematically conquering and installing new leadership in the cities and castles that he takes. So he's really, Mm. he's doing a military occupation rather than just like a slash and burn sort of thing. Mm. Um, And once he's built himself a substantial base in uh, France, um, Henry is hoping to bully Charles VI into letting Henry marry his daughter, Catherine of Valois, Um, Mm. which he eventually will, but that's a story for another time. Um, Henry's strategy of sort of colonizing rather than scorching Normandy uh, proves an effective change of pace for the English, who haven't had really a victory at all since the Black Prince won at uh, Mm. Poitiers, or at least not like a major, Mm. significant victory.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And uh, Henry's invasion also spurs the French into action. Um, And the princes Mm. show... Kind of a rare solidarity, um, although mm. uh, John the Fearless is definitely has
3: his hands off the wheel at this point. The Dauphin specifically tells John the Fearless, Do not come to the royal army, <laughs> we don't want you there. <laughs> You're not invited
0: once again. Poor John, yeah, I mean, not poor John, he's a mm. he's terrible. But <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you feel sorry for it, he's a bit he 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 like reminds me a bit of an incel a little bit where it's like <laughs> i understand i understand why you're in pain i still think you're an awful person um <laughs> so, yeah. yeah so i mean yeah it's his own yeah, fault so but, um... yeah, so, yeah the, the the french unify with many asterisks uh, against uh, henry <laughs> um and uh, they come at him with a with a very large French army, and Henry starts sort of retreating northeast towards Calais um, with the hope of getting reinforcements over the sea from England. So the French kind of chase him, and they catch up to him on a muddy field just outside the village mm-hmm. of Agincourt. Now, not all of v- France's vassals are present. Uh, we've already mentioned that John the Fearless and his... Troops were absent from um, Agincourt. And the French army at this time is mainly made up of Armagnac supporters, as I mentioned. The Dauphin actually isn't uh, present either. Um, So, as I mentioned last episode, Berry had very shrewdly made sure that the Dauphin stayed away
3: from this battlefield. I believe he said, uh, it's better to lose a battle than a battle in a king. Exactly. Oh
2: yeah, they learned that lesson.
3: Exactly. Yeah, Barry knew that from personal experience. um, Because
2: they're like, we're not happening that again.
3: Which makes the the film
0: The King... even more infuri- infuriating to me because they entirely missed the point of Agincourt and why it was significant, but whatever! Uh, <laughs> I haven't seen it. I feel
3: like that'd be kind of fun to it's uh, Oh, it's, oh, it's a, a
0: bad... It, I think it's an objectively terrible film, but um, <laughs> um, we should, we, maybe we should do an episode on it. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, we can invite Josh on and we can rage about it.
3: Oh, that sounds yeah. fun. <laughs> I'm sure I'll have a lot of complaints. <laughs> oh, yes. oh yes, there's a lot. Oh,
0: and Veronica as well would have a lot of complaints about it, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so the French army is not at full strength, but it's still much larger than the English force. Um, and mm. there are lots of very important lords there, including the Duke of Orleans, uh, the Duke of Bourbon, form- formerly Clermont, now he's Bourbon, um, and the Count of Alençon. As well as John's two brothers, the Duke of Brabant and the Count of Navarre. Yeah, so there is like a, a, a Burgundianish presence there. It's just not... John himself isn't there. And Armagnac is also mm. not there, as I mentioned before. So, spoiler alert, um, Orléans They're and both Bourbon uh, both get captured, and Alençon gets his head chopped off. Um, as do John's as brothers. As do John's Yeah, so we'll obviously... We'll get into Agincourt in more detail when Veronica returns to talk about Charles of Orléans, who's actually at the battle, um, and spends a long captivity in, in uh, England after this. But for now...
2: A that's good captivity—that's the
1: question.
0: Yeah, but but the very the very briefest summary of the Battle of Agincourt is you know it's the typical French defeat against England where they just go charging in and the English are more mm. uh, be- are better organized even though they have a much smaller force and they just shoot them. Mm. Um, yep. <laughs> yeah, that's the very <laughs> the very briefest summary of, of Agincourt, um, which I don't want to be too flippant about Agincourt, but again, we'll get into it. In much further detail later on,
3: mm. um,
0: so this is without a doubt one of the darkest moments of the Hundred Years' War, if not the darkest yeah. for the French. Uh, but there's a silver lining for Armagnac in particular. Mm. So Henry V, he will return to uh, France eventually, but for now he hasn't. He doesn't have the force to follow up his victory with a with mm. a march on Paris. Um, he's got this weakened force that he's he's basically won the ability to retreat. Um, rather than winning, like, a conquering France yeah. or anything. Um, mm. And with Orléans uh, and a bunch of other major lords either dead or captured, uh, and with the Duke of Berry now on his deathbed at this point, there's a there's a bit of a power vacuum happening in France. And the Dauphin is, once again, still kind of struggling. Um, mm. So the
3: Civil War's kind of back on again. So John the Fearless was shocked to hear about the defeat at Agincourt, and, like I said, his two brothers died. So he was... Personally devastated by the battle, yeah. but he also knew that it did present him with an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So he begins this march on Paris, nominally to protect the capital from Henry V. But like we know, <laughs> why he's really going to <laughs> Paris? I, 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 by the time he like reaches Champagne, it's well known that Henry V is in Calais, mm-hmm. and he's not going to Paris. So he's there to try and seize power. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Armagnac. Uh
0: was even further from Paris when he got the news about Agincourt. Uh, he was in the Southwest organizing a defense against the English who remember still have that Southern bit in in Guienne, which directly borders the Armagnac land. So it makes sense that Armagnac's down there defending that. Mm. Uh, but he quickly legs it to Paris as both he and John the fearless attempt to take advantage of the power vacuum and seize control of the King of the Dauphin. So it's a race to Paris. Um, And Armagnac was helped by the fact that the Dauphin is still kind of on his side. Um, But once again, it's very complicated. Um, And uh, the the Dauphin had appointed him uh, Constable of France, which essentially means he's the leader of the armed forces. Um, Uh. Not only this, but Armagnac uh, also managed to somehow
3: make it to Paris before John the Fearless.
0: I don't know how he achieved this.
3: I Bloody mean, basically, wings. John was moving slowly, and he was in negotiations during this time. And I think Armagnac basically he just, just booked it. it. Yeah, I'm assuming. Yeah,
2: I'm going to I'm going to go with my theory that he got grew wings.
3: He grew wings. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Maybe this time John brought a boat with him. No, the uh, the admiral mm.
0: goes around with a boat. The constable just flies.
3: That's yeah. the <laughs>
0: that is um.
2: And John just walks.
0: <laughs> he gets given like a seal of office, which then does he does like a magical girl transformation using it and then Yes,
2: and then- <laughs> he
3: comes like anime yes! <laughs> and then he flies <laughs> to the capital. Yes. So that's what happens. And <laughs> Well technically, you know, the the constable does come with uh, a sword, doesn't he? I bet he does like the she ra thing. Yes. The He-Man yeah. Thing. yeah. He yes.
0: the he um he flies. Yes, yeah, so Armagnac makes it there first. And, uh, John is once again on the outside looking in, and the Burgundians are forced to withdraw from the, from the walls of Paris.
2: I'm just imagining, like, John getting there and, like, stomping his foot and going, God damn
0: it! Yeah, not again! <laughs> so now, even though the, the Dauphin had, in the end, kind of chosen the Armagnac side, for now, sort of, um, he still had some, some love left in his heart for his cousin John the Feelers, and his main goal was to reconcile the two factions. But guess what Always. happens?
2: <laughs> he dies. He dies. dies. He dies. He
0: and dies. this goal yeah. goes completely out the window. He dies of dysentery Aww. on the 18th, 18th of, of December, 1415. So a few months. How after. old was he? Or I think actually or just a month. I after think after. like 19. Yeah, yeah he was, Aww. he's still a teenager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh,
2: he's my yeah. brothers, eh?
0: Um So now the Count of Armagnac used his military supremacy in Paris to exploit the power vacuum, which is now an even bigger power vacuum, and he seized control of yeah. the king, the new Dauphin, the second son, uh, John, Duke of Touraine, and the royal government.
3: Oh, actually, uh D- John of Touraine is currently in Haino. Ah, uh, yes, of course, he's not in Paris. Yeah. So, John, yeah, he's he's off. But basically,
0: army acts in charge of the government. Um, yeah. Yep. So the new Dof- the new Dauphin, Dof- John uh, Duke of mm-hmm. uh, Touraine, he he's not very relevant because he he only lasts a year and a half. Some say he gets oh. poisoned. Yeah, but basically we don't have to worry too much about him because he dies very quickly. Um, and he's replaced <laughs> yeah. by the youngest and final Dauphin, uh, the future Charles VII of France, uh, uh. who is decidedly Armagnac. He's definitely Armagnac mm-hmm. through and through. Yeah, um, big change from the
3: previous two Dauphins. Yeah,
0: yes, the previous were two were very neutral. iffy, back and forth. Oh, we want to make peace, blah blah blah. Charles the is like these Burgundians. Yeah, nah. I hate their guts. Um, so, in so in this period, we'll see the Armagnac cause and the Dauphin's cause become sort of synonymous. Um, the Armagnacs become kind of like the militant arm of the Dauphinist cause, as it as it ends up being called. Um, although it'll, it'll get a bit more complicated when there's another arm that advocates for reconciliation with Burgundy which is uh, headed by the Dauphin's future mother-in-law Yolande of Aragon subject of next, mm. next episode and uh, uh spoiler alert she'll end up being a lot more successful than um, the previous attempts of at reconciliation but we'll get to that <laughs> so as the constable Uh, Armagnac wasn't just focused on France's internal disputes, though. He realized that he had to uh, put the feud with Burgundy on hold to dislodge Henry V from Normandy. Because Henry V, let me remind you at this point, is doing the systematic, you know, occupation conquest of of Normandy. They want to reintegrate it into like a core English territory. Mm. So in 1416, Armagnac marched north with 3,000 men. He left his remaining 2,000 behind in Paris. And he picked Mm -hmm. up uh, loyal Norman reinforcements on the way towards Arfleur on the north coast, Mm -hmm. which is like the main English port. So near Valmont, he he met the Earl of Dorset, uh, the -hmm. um, uh, English general, in a bloody skirmish when the French uh, troops once again outnumbered the English. Uh, but uh tale as old as time, the French were poorly disciplined compared to the smaller English force. They basically just charged straight through and like went for the baggage wagon to get the loot from the English troops <sighs> rather than, and then they got encircled. It's just like with the Ottomans as well. Like yeah. the, it's just it, yeah. the, they keep That's doing the same best. thing over and over again. It takes them,
3: they do eventually learn, but it takes them so long, <laughs> so long. Um, Wait. So you're saying that a massive cavalry charge won't solve every problem? N- what? I shockingly yes. Um, oh man! I know
0: this is, you're gonna have to process that, Josh. Uh, <laughs> oh! <laughs> so, it will
2: help, though. If you're in Lord of the Rings.
0: Uh yeah, well, yeah you're Lord of the maybe maybe these these French nobles are too big uh, Tolkien to take- fans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You um,
2: could just time travel to that.
0: <laughs> so, okay. So, um, so both sides, uh, this kind of uh, skirmish with the English kind of ends in, in a sort of stalemate. Um, the uh, the yeah. English withdraw to Arfleur. Uh, they come back with reinforcements and they sort of scatter the French troops. So, so this campaign mm-hmm. of Armagnacs into Normandy is a bit of a failure. And he was clearly struggling to maintain control over his troops, who are uh the core of his troops are made up of Gascons from the far south of France, and they have no mm-hmm. affinity with the people of Normandy. They're essentially separate countries. Um yeah. so the Gascons just come into Normandy being like, ooh, let's loot We're some loot. let's loot some Normans. Um, who are like, ah, oh, these Normans, they're basically English anyway. We can loot them, it's fine. Whereas the Normans now are like. No,
3: this is not great, and, uh, and you know it's funny because the Normans probably would have said those Gascons are basically English anyway too.
0: Yeah, which is the that's the ironic thing is the Gascons previous were under English rule almost longer than the Normans were, um,
3: mm-hmm.
0: but yeah, so the the. Um, it, it, it's interesting in this period, while the French are being really chaotic and civil wary, the English are being very organised yeah. and actually introducing a uh, good government to yeah. the 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 occupied territories in France. Obviously, there's a lot of war atrocities and that sort of thing as well. But Henry V, in particular, with his very sort of organised, methodical approach to warfare, he's very good at um, kind of. Uh, using the the chaoticness of french politics to his advantage by just coming in and being like things could be so much easier if we just get rid of all that and just make me king
3: (laughs) he actually does specifically um appeal to the legacy of saint louis and the ideal of good government under him uh in his norman campaigns like that is that is an image he is specifically cultivating, and you know he's just as much of a of, of a
0: descendant of Saint Louis as all of these other inbred people are. So, True. <laughs> um, so in in a, so in addition, um, uh, things are um getting out of hand in Paris again. Armagnac becomes distracted yeah. by Parisian affairs. He withdraws from Normandy. He returns to uh, Paris. Um, yeah. Because you know who he hates more than the English? John the Fearless. Uh, Mm. (laughs)
3: John the
0: Fearless. So the Armagnac cause in general was very unpopular with the people of Paris, as had the Orléans cause way back when. Um, Mm. They, of course, uh, are still, the people themselves are still leaning Burgundian. So when Armagnac occupies Paris, he, he has to do it very violently and repressively. Uh, yeah, which only leads to more yeah. resentment and riots, Mortation. which lead, leads to more forces having to be deployed, which leads to higher taxes being raised, which leads to more resentment, and you can see how this would spiral.
2: That's cycle. Like,
3: okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, during Armagnac's time as master of Paris, there are several attempts by yeah. Burgundian partisans to open the gates for a Burgundian force, um which, you know, like Ben said, leads to more Heavy-handed repression, which leads to more Burgundian sympathizers. After the Cabochon Revolution, uh, John had become fairly <coughs> unpopular with a lot of the people of Paris. Um, you know, he's still very popular amongst the radicals and the more downtrodden. the, the, but the like the middle class, the yeah, the middle class doesn't quite, you, you know, kind of turns against him a little bit. But uh, after this long period of repression, they are very Burgundian again. They're they're like, like oh God, he was so much better. Yeah. So um, the Count of Armagnac also viewed Queen Isabeau as unreliable. And so he had her imprisoned in tour. (gasps) And so she sneaks out a letter to John the Fearless and he comes, uh, you know, he, he, he comes riding in with a cavalry company grabs her, and then the two set up uh, an anti-government in the city of Troyes uh, to rival Armagnac, Paris. Uh, So this anti-government proclaims, one of their first things that they do is they proclaim that almost all of the taxes that Paris was levying were illegitimate, and so you don't have to pay those anymore. (laughs) So they become very popular. Yeah, they become very popular very quickly. Uh, because we haven't really got, gotten into that this much, but over the past, like, decade or two, uh, the people of France had been paying, like, way more taxes than, like, know. the generation before them had. Yeah. So they're kind of being crushed by high taxes right now. And it's not going to better schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the most part, it's going to a civil war that a certain John sparked. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so by saying you don't have to pay your taxes anymore, John the Fearless gets an easy way for many people in France to recognize the Queen and then by extension him as the true regent of France as opposed to Armagnac. Mm -hmm. And so Armagnac starts to really struggle to actually
0: get the taxes that he's extorting for the people of Paris because he's being recognized as their ruler. Um, the shadow, uh, not shadow government, well, I yeah. guess shadow government in, in Troyes. They're is. like,
2: we don't have to recognise you. Yeah.
0: yeah. But Armagnac, he keeps doubling down to the extent that Paris started looking like a police state with uh, Gascon Ooh. army regiments constantly patrolling areas of the city uh, known to host pro-Burgundian populations.
3: Winston! <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that. Winston's getting, uh... Restless. Yeah. Uh. Um... <laughs> yeah so a- anyway his... i need to
0: see photos of Winston actually
3: um after this oh i, I will happily send it? Oh, he's your, he's your discord further yeah, oh yeah. yes yes i need both photos though um <laughs> will do so finally on the 29th of may 1418 one of those attempts by burgundian partisans to open the gates for a burgundian force which we brought up earlier succeeded Um, a company of burgundian soldiers was joined by a pro-burgundian mob and many of the leaders of the armagnac government were arrested however uh the breton knight uh du chastel managed Mm -hmm. to spirit the dauphin away from Mm -hmm. paris and so while uh the burgundians were able to take uh paris the Armagnacs remained control of the crown prince. Oh. A few days after this, uh, Duchastel returned with an Armagnac army to try and retake Paris. And this attempt failed, but it did cause a stir of paranoia. Another mob now formed, and it came for the Armagnac prisoners and massacred them. Uh, they then began combing through the streets of Paris looking for Armagnacs, which had not yet been imprisoned. And while the initial Burgundian seizure of Paris was fairly bloodless, I believe like two or three people were reported to have been killed in that first, like, yeah. seizure of Paris, mm. this, this riot's not- death toll was far higher. Yeah.
0: And guess who's one of the Armagnac prisoners who gets massacred? Who? Armagnac.
1: Damn.
0: Yeah. The Count of Armagnac himself, uh, after about two weeks in prison, was murdered by the mob on the 12th of June, 1418. Um, at the age of 59 so that's him dead he's reported to have been buried somewhere in Paris I couldn't find where but it's a bit rough that he was buried in Paris the city that killed him Um, so that is the end of my guy murdered uh, murdered by John the Fearless once again albeit more indirectly this time (laughs) <laughs> uh, yeah. But John, John will get his comeuppance uh, very soon, I'm sure. Which
3: we will get to in just a little mm-hmm. bit. Ooh. After these sponsors- No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: Stick uh. around and find out. So John the Fearless enters Paris about a month and a half after the death of the Count of Armagnac.
0: Do you think John waited a couple of weeks just because he was like, I want it to I be absolutely clear that I wasn't involved this time. This one is
3: not my fault. (laughs) No, this one's definitely not my fault. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the other one isn't either. That's justified. (laughs) But so, yeah, uh, he enters Paris about a month and a half after the death of Armagnac. And despite finally regaining Paris, uh, the Dauphin is now surrounded by anti-Burgundians who are as rabidly anti-Burgundian as they had ever been. And so the civil war is continuing with the Armagnac faction, like Ben said, morphing into the Dauphinist faction. Mm. And kind of, if you think about it, the Armagnac attack on Paris did end up damaging the Duke of Burgundy. This was indirectly and at a great cost to their own faction. But the prospect of reconciliation was really hurt by this, by the burgundian reprisals the riot when john's forces first took paris it kind of seemed like eh, maybe we will be able to make peace finally mm. but just about two weeks later after the riot and the massacres the loathing between the two parties was about as high as it had ever been yeah so while this is happening henry v is continuing his <laughs> conquest of normandy merrily <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's having a grand old time. He's
2: like, yay, chaos. I can take advantage of this.
3: As his conquest becomes more and more successful, and as he's basically bowling down both Burgundian and Dauphinist attempts to, like, aid Normandy, you know, there's more pressure coming on both the Dauphin and the Duke of Burgundy to make mm. peace. However, they're also both in talks with Henry V to see if they can make an alliance to maybe kick the other one out of France. Uh, So like in the lead up to Agincourt, the Burgundians, the Armagnacs turned Dauphinists and the English are all kind of in talks with each other trying to see, okay, who do I hate the least out of Mm -hmm. my two other options? Mm. But it kind of, as the English invasion is more successful and as it, it really becomes clear that France has to unite if they're going to kick out the English. Yeah. Burgundy and the Dauphin start to make a bit more progress in their peace negotiations. Yeah. And on the 10th of September they agreed to meet in the town of uh, Montereau-Fontillon. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Duke and the Prince met on a bridge over the Yonne, each Ooh. accompanied by a few men.
2: Well, I can just imagine that.
3: John the Fearless kneeled to greet the Dauphin, and as he was getting up Tanaga du Chastel swung an axe into the Duke of Burgundy. (gasps) A brief skirmish broke out where one of the Dauphin's men, an old Orleanus, proclaimed, You cut off my master's hand. I'll cut off yours. Soon, the Duke of Burgundy and his retinue lay dead.
2: (gasps) Oh my gosh.
3: The Dauphin had gotten rid of his rival for power, but he had driven the new Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Good, to do something that his father had always avoided, ally with the English. (gasps) A little over a hundred years after this assassination, King Francis I of France, a great-grandson of Louis of Orléans and a great-great-grandson of John the Fearless, was touring the Duchy of Burgundy. At this point, Burgundy is now owned by the crown of France once more, but the heir of the Valois dukes of Burgundy still claim that title and are itching to reclaim the duchy. Mm-hmm. Francis was visiting the charterhouse of Champmoll, Philip the Bold's great monument to his dynasty. And while he was there, a monk brought out the skull of John the Fearless and, pointing to a hole made by a Dauphinist sword, said, This is the hole through which the English entered France. Oh.
0: And we're gonna leave it. We're gonna leave it there. Yeah, <laughs> with that lovely yeah. little coda at the end. Um,
3: Although Ben Ben does say, <laughs> I right uh, 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 the English yeah. were kind
0: of already in France, but but yeah. I get what King Francis <laughs> meant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, king monk. yeah, yeah, it's yes, because from this point, from this point, things really shift because it's now the Dauphin is the future king and also the head of the anti-Burgundy faction. So what does Burgundy do? They say, well, now the King of England is the King of France.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
3: Because there's no other uh, way about it. Yeah, And uh, once you kind of get to covering uh, that part of the Civil War, uh, you'll learn that uh, the Duke of Bedford, who ends up taking it over, his number one goal is to keep the Burgundians on side. Yeah. And we'll see how he does. Because he's uh, one yeah. of our regents in the
0: Regency of Madness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Ooh. yeah, so yeah, we're go- we're going to talk about an English guy here, Eliza. Yeah,
1: it's crazy.
0: So let's get into ra- into rating and uh, comparing uh, these two yeah. combatants um, and yep. uh, see how they do in enjante. First of all, enjante. We'll start with John. He's got a bunch of fantastic portraits. <laughs> Mm-hmm. This he sure does. beautiful who from Whoville, as I call him, he—he's—I <laughs> could only describe his face as a as a as a Seussian face. There I'm are the there same. are other
3: um, portraits where he looks even more like that. You might be able to tell why uh, Calmet spent, like, a few lines insulting his appearance. It's so rude. I know.
0: Although, right? I mean, the Valois, um come to power at, at the wrong time, because it's the time where likeness portraiture starts becoming fashionable, and the Valois oh, are yeah. famously not
3: attractive. Um... <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, they're not not that ugly. They're not too bad. I don't know if I would call John a very attractive
0: But as we mentioned last episode, compared to the um, Capetians. Yeah. um, Okay, so this is the portrait of uh, John the Fearless. This is a, according to Wikipedia, this is a copy of an original uh, from around uh, 1415, which is by Rogier van van der Weyden, obviously a Dutch artist, because the Dutch are the
3: only ones who can paint, apparently, in this period. (laughs) <laughs> and uh this guy specifically is one of the most prominent of the Flemish primitives, which is a very important art movement going on right now. and insultingly named. Uh, you can also call it early Netherlandish art.
2: I don't know why you're saying he looks like a who from Who'sville. He does his
0: nose is Oh, not you got you got to see uh some other ones. Um there's another one that makes
3: yeah. him really whoish. Yeah, there there's there's a few that I'll 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 grant that.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see that. I see that now. I it's can't.
3: the one where he's got the...
0: Which one are you looking It's the at? one where he's got the big um, red collar. Um, and he's kind of in profile. Oh, he's in yeah. profile. And he's like... Yeah. He's like holding no, a ring I, very daintily.
2: That.
3: <laughs> that is a who. He's a who. John the Fearless's artistic legacy, it's not quite up to snuff with yeah. what his father did. But he did continue patronizing many of the same artists. And he, you know, he commissioned some writings from Christine de Pizan, who admittedly did kind of turn against him as the Civil War heated up. Um, but uh, you know, he, he was a patron of the arts. This is, this is one of my favorite things. But so when he and Louis of Orleans are getting into like a rivalry for, you know, John's trying to get, gain some power and Louis trying to totally exclude him. So Louis of Orleans, his motto was j'ai l'envie, which roughly translates to I desire it.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so John took up as his motto Ichraud, which is uh Flemish for I hold it.
0: Oh. <laughs> so wait, Orleans said I want it, and then Burgundy said I got it.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yes, it's like a song.
3: <laughs> but yeah, so Loves it goes even pittiness. further. So <laughs> Yeah. So, or- Orléans' symbol was like this knotty branch. So, John took up as his symbol the carpenter's plane to smooth out the knots of the Orleanist branch. Love okay, that. so he's doing the symbolism pretty well.
2: Oh, I do. Oh, love yeah. That.
3: We d- we do love
0: that nonchante. John the Feelist. He's 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 kind of continuing that great artistic legacy uh, to his credit, even though he's not necessarily doing anything like you know radically new. But he's at least continuing it. Mm-hmm. Armagnac doesn't really have much to continue in in that in that vein uh he 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 doesn't inherit the cultural empire that um that john the feelis does and uh in both historical documentation and in fiction uh, Armagnac has often been portrayed as like an aggressive ruthless warmonger. um he's not really the artsy type he doesn't uh seem to have been particularly interested in matters outside of you know politics and 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 warfare he, Here's a portrait of him Eliza we don't have like a yeah. a lovely Flemish painting we have a a, a later oh, I think this is a 16th a century um it looks like print a child. print of him he looks like a what child yeah he looks, All he, been, he looks yeah very young and uh I also have so behind him is is the royal coat of arms and and also his coat mm. of arms um and I'll, I'll send you what his coat of arms looks like the uh, the Armagnac uh coat of arms um it's I don't know if that's sent properly. Oh,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. nice. Um,
0: oh, yeah. yeah, so we've got basically the lions uh, of Armagnac. Um, very, very unimaginative. He's just like, mm. oh, Olion and oh, and Burgundy are doing this little dance of symbolism. And Armagnac just comes in. He's like, lions.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Woo!
3: I got lions. <laughs> <laughs> Although, uh, th- there, there is a pretty uh, fun example, if you want it. Um, the Burgundians, one of their big patron saints was St. Saint Andrew, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the signs, symbols of Armagnac was a white sash. And so when Armagnac took control of the city, uh, he ordered white sashes to be placed on, like, statues and paintings of St. Andrew throughout Paris.
0: Uh-oh. Josh is always coming in with the little tidbits that just add the personal touch, which I really love. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So, Eliza, <laughs> who yeah. do you think wins on Chante?
2: Got to go for the symbolism of that little petty symbolism. Yeah. Got to go for Matthew. I, I
0: thought I'd have to concede this one again. It's just pretty good. Yeah. I, I, I won big time with Barry uh, last episode. Yeah. yeah. So, you know. Yeah. But,
3: I mean, the Bur- Burgundians really are just so good with, like you know, girl. symbolism, like art and court etiquette. It is like one it's of their, their thing, things. Yeah. So,
2: And they're doing their thing very well.
0: But in On Guard, mm-hmm. we might have a different thing. Mm. Might, oh yeah might have more competition um
3: mm.
0: on oh, guard so josh would you like so, to yeah. list off um <laughs> john the field's uh on guard credentials just to remind us i mean
3: just to start off with uh, he killed his cousin <laughs> the brother of the king he had him killed and because, kind of got away with it you No. Know, question mark yeah yeah, yeah. i mean he like yeah and I then he goes back like a month later and he justifies the deed and the justification is so nasty to the legacy of orleans that his uh, children qu- literally call it orleans second death yeah um but then apart from that like just his conduct in the civil war in general he refuses to acknowledge any wrongdoing basically ever he won't like like he doesn't even ask for a pardon before mm. he justifies the murder
1: yeah
3: um And like, there are so many times when a compromise piece is brought to him and he's, he just says, no, I will not accept this compromise that limits my power. Um, There's also the battle of, exactly. Uh, There's the battle of OT where he kind of, you know, crushes um, this kind of like, low country town uprising And so it's a way for him to kind of strike at the towns without striking at his own towns. Mm. Um, He's a bit of a quasi populist. He, you know, appeals to um, things that the people of France, like Um, he tries to manipulate the estates general and the people of Paris. And then kind of in the more warlike category, he's also a big early adopter of artillery Mm. Um, in a lot of the civil war he, like, carries this big artillery train with him. And nice. when he's kind of marching on Paris around, like, I think it's 1417, 1418, he just has this long train of artillery that, nice. you know, he'll walk up to a town and he'll say, say are that. you going to open... Yeah. He says, are you going to open your gates to me? And they either say yes and he goes in, or they say no and he, like, bombs nice. them until they submit. Could you imagine if he really? if he bombed Paris? Whoop. Oh, man. Mm. He, I will say, he he's very good at propaganda, so yeah, I would yeah. think that he would know not to do that. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And
0: propaganda, to be clear, in this time, it's like, it's, it's less, because the printing press doesn't exist, it's less people handing out yeah. pamphlets, and <laughs> it's more just people yelling.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: it's,
3: it's town cries yelling at people, is propaganda. Well, well, well no, so what he'll do is he'll nice. send letters out, and then people will read the letter, and then they'll nail it to the cathedral church of the mm. town. Yeah. Oh, like mm. Martin yeah, Luther style. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Nice. Yeah. So when Martin Luther was doing that, it, it was basically because just that's where people hung up things. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't a statement
0: yeah. about and the cathedral. Board. It's just like yeah, just, uh, yeah. This is this is uh, like I posted notice it. Board. I posted it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I put it in my stories. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. So. Um. Uh yeah, so Armagnac um he has an uphill battle here because he because John literally defeated him um <laughs> in the end. Yeah. Uh so there's that. Uh but uh, and but Armagnac uh, he is he's he puts the fear of God into uh the people of northern France. Um he uh in in contrast to more level headed he was really like the attack dog of yeah. of this um anti-burgundian faction um and that they often had, had trouble uh, muzzling at times uh because he and his 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 brutish gaskins would would go around go um raiding um anyone who you know defied them and um He was often able... uh, Armagnac was often able to successfully bully the other lords into going his way and using his strategy, um, using Mm. his greater wealth and military power. Um, He did fail to gain the loyalty of the Parisians due to his tendency to harass and pillage rather than propagandize to them. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, he was he because he's kind of an outsider he kind of has leave to do this in a more violent and forthright way than the um the uncles Mm -hmm. or you know the princes have done um he did a good job at fending off the english uh uh their general talbot in the south which we didn't really get into but he was successful fending off the english Mm -hmm. in in downing uh gascony um where he was sort of more on his home turf i suppose uh, but he failed to regain Normandy. Uh, mm. that really fizzled out that little invasion. And then he went back to Paris and died there. Um, of of mob. Died of died of angry mob. Died um, of mob. <laughs> first first death It's pretty first lethal. Death by Angry Mob, I think we've had on this podcast. If, unless I can think ah, uh, yeah. unless I can think of another one we've had. But um First definitely confirmed thought- death by Angry. We've come close a couple times, but this is the first time you can say and part of that is because Desimate. he's not the king. The, an angry mob would never kill the king at this point. They do eventually. Yeah.
1: But
3: but yeah, not at okay. this point. Yeah. <laughs> um I mean like uh it, it, in histories of like the Kaboshia uprising, you know, people are like it, it will explicitly say like, you know, despite like all the intimidation done around the Dauphin the king, they were never in any danger. No, the king yeah. is sacred. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Whereas this guy, People who's this guy? Is just this so general much. that's came in and is bullying everyone, and the Dauphin doesn't yeah. even like him, so they feel they it's feel bestified. entitled, yeah, to off him. So that, that's Armagnac's on guard.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm gonna have to go with Burgundy.
0: Yeah, <laughs> because yeah
2: he wasn't killed by a mob
0: I'm gonna lose he was still i'm killed. gonna lose every single category aren't i <laughs>
1: yeah.
3: I'm rooting for it I mean I think yeah. like i i i think your original plan was putting John up against Charles of Orleans, yes, which would have been and that might have been a bit more of a of a battle yeah. but
0: yeah. yeah i um yeah i I mainly went by. Uh, And it kind of lined up pretty well. I mainly went went by who died around the same time as each other. So Mm. as not to get too far ahead in the narrative. Because the Duke of Orleans, spoiler alert, outlives practically every other character that we're going to talk about in The Viancy of Madness. uh, Charles, Duke of Orleans. Even the Dauphin slash King Charles VII, he outlives. So yeah, he he lives Mm -hmm. for a while. Um, Spoil that. Spoiler, but a lot of that life is spent imprisoned in, in England, which we'll get to. Ugh. But that's uh, uh, yeah. on guard. Um, I guess John wins this one as well. Right, Eliza? Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, yeah. Uh, so moving on to Voulez-vous. voulez So it is really hard to give John a lot of points here, you know, due to him <laughs> sparking the civil war. Um, and, like, you know, I think if he was against anyone else, he would not stand a chance. But. You know, I will make my case here. Um, yeah, he did legitimately champion administrative reform, lower taxes, reducing corruption, and increasing oversight on royal officials. Uh, the Kabocha mm-hmm. uprising that was really all about people saying, we want reform, we want reform. And then, you know, they got carried away after that. Yeah. Um, but like, while that's happening, there's this thing like the Ordinance Kabocha or the oh. Ordinance Kabochaienne where um, it's this big administrative package of reform. It's huge, it's long, it's comprehensive. And that is kind of like uh, done on the Duke of Burgundy's behalf. Mm. Um, But, you know, his attempts to carry out these reforms in France were generally pretty resisted. Um, Mm. when he had power, he kind of tried to implement them, but like, you know, early on in his reign, when uh, Louis of Orleans is still alive, he, he's standing in the way of them. And then when, when he kind of like control, when he's like starting to get a grasp on things, there's still a lot of people fighting him on these reforms. Mm. Uh, But in his own territories, he does actually implement a lot of them in his lands. Um, And he also worked well with his subjects. Um, out of mm. any of the Burgundian Dukes, he had arguably the best relationship with yeah. the Flemings, uh, who you know are very I volatile. Um. So, you know, it. it's not nothing, but like, yeah. you know, weighing the Civil War versus his reforms, I, I would say yeah. it still does lean on the negative side. I will admit that, but there are positives, too.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, Armagnac. <laughs> Look, if we consider Armagnac to be the the, um, the ruler of the Armagnac territories in Gascony, they're doing all right. Mm. Uh, they get to raid lots of northerners, and <laughs> they're doing great. And uh, his wife, Bonne Berry is administrating his lands down oh, in the nice. south, and she seems fine. She's good at her job. Um but apart from that, Armag is a horrible dictator, yeah, basically, yeah. in Paris.
1: That? Taxes.
0: Um so bad that he gets murdered, and it's almost a footnote in history that he gets murdered. That they don't make a big deal out of it the way they make a big deal Anyone out else. of it. Um all these other murders that happen because they're kind of just like, you Yeah, he had it, it coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah. yeah, I really I there's there's nothing I can really say in this yeah, round. Yeah,
2: I, I really would not want to live in Paris under his reign, rule,
0: mm. regency. A very selfish, violent, horrible yeah, man.
2: Definitely not want to be. His <laughs>
0: yeah. He's possibly he th- these two are possibly the worst people that we've yeah, talked about. I think so. Yeah, but, but I. But the fact that Armagnac is like a worse person than John the Fearless, yeah. I think, is really. I know it really something. is. Yeah. It's impressive, honestly. Yeah. It is impressive. <laughs> but sadly, is yeah. not winning yeah, in the it's category.
2: Not. I have
0: to go with John again. My do an Ill which is the next yeah, category. Great, yeah. great, great it's segue there. Assuming
3: that we're done. Assuming that we're done with Yeah, the labor. Yeah. Ula <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> la. I mean, do I need to say it? He killed yeah. his cousin. It is the scandal of the century. Um, other things he he acknowledged four bastards, but this is nothing compared to his son, who I believe acknowledged eighteen bastards, and I think the the unofficial number goes into the thirties.
2: Damn.
3: Sadly, we'll not be reviewing Philip the Good, but to learn all about him,
0: there's a great podcast you can listen to.
3: Oh yeah, check it out. At this point, it might be like a year before I get there, but hey, yeah. Um.
0: But I'm sure we'll get into it in loads of detail. The
3: bastards are there, uh, but, I mean, the, the big scandal. We all, we all know what it is. The thing of his
0: story both starting and ending with an, assas- an assassination. Yeah. 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 Although, um, John the Fields' death was a bit more of a whoopsie-daisy.
1: Um, <laughs> I
0: but also would John argue the that it
3: was premeditated. Pre-
2: yeah, I'd say it's pre min not definitely. Okay, well, there
3: are, s- there, is, are some there, there are some. Say, there are some.
2: <laughs> well, I just, what, accidentally flung my sword the into your neck. The more
0: generous not at all biased accounts on Charles VII's side would argue that, that um, <laughs> what, somebody saw, saw someone drawing a sword or something and then someone panicked and and killed the Duke of Burgundy.
2: He <laughs> was just like, oh, whoops, I slipped.
0: <laughs> oh, right into handy. your neck. <laughs> Tanguy de Chastel, great name. I was just name.
2: trying to clean my sword yeah. and whoopsie Great name, Daisy. terrible
0: whoopsie-daisy. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> um, Alleged yeah, whoopsie-daisy. I don't, I don't I think... buy it. <laughs> I, I'm sure yeah. that So, speaking of bastards, I'm sure Ben of Armagnac had bastards. He had all of the vices of a typical French mm. lord. Um, we, we don't really know about them, but um, I really don't think we need to scrape the barrel by... Uh, Looking at illegitimate children for this one, there's a lot to go off, um, but parents. we're not, we, you know, we're not giving them uh, a sort of point tally. We're really just comparing them and seeing, saying who has more scandal in terms of murders. Armagnac certainly caused a lot of them. Uh, there was a lot of basically death caused his own death. Basically caused his own murder. Yeah, uh, um. and he was certainly responsible for the deaths of a, a lot more common people than John the Phyllis was. I got to say. Yeah. Uh, but Armagnac's kill list wasn't quite as consequential as John's. Yeah. So both get points for being assassinated. Yeah. So they, they're kind of equal on that front. Although Armagnac's death is a bit sort of off-screen and anticlimactic, whereas mm. John's is is spectacular, and the deed itself has major far-reaching consequences yeah. on the lives of um, in, in particular the life of Charles the Seventh, who is yeah. blamed for it. And it will actually psychologically- Rightly blamed for it. impact him. <laughs> you, right, well, yes, rightly. Uh, actually, there's a funny thing. We'll, we'll get to this in Charles VII's episode, obviously. But Charles VII was was very paranoid, and one of his fears was a fear of bridges.
1: Oh.
0: I wonder is either why. Because he was afraid that, the, that yeah, the bridge would uh, collapse, or because he just had severe, such severe trauma from this one bridge. Um, so that's an interesting little tidbit. He's like, if um, I go
2: on a bridge, the ghost will come back and kill me.
0: I think, um, once again, I am conceding to John the fearless because his scandal is just a lot more colourful.
2: Yeah, the magnitude is just greater. Like, in terms of a common person, I would hate to be under like Arminak. Arm. Like, he'd just be like, "Ooh." But in terms of like the magnitude of the result but of the I scandal, think, it's definitely yeah. John.
0: John is painting in colours other than red, I think.
2: Yeah, he's like every <laughs> yeah. shade of red. If you ask me.
0: Yes, there's a lot of Arminak's red. Armagnac's like one shade, yeah. maybe
2: two shades. Yeah,
0: Armagnac Armin- but- is. This is the thing: is Arminak is quite one note. He, he just.
2: Yeah, well, John is like fifty shades, of he red. just
0: hits the thing until it until it does what he tell <laughs> what he tells it to do yeah. until it kills it. Yeah. Uh, whereas John the Fearless is is more more of a sneaky little rat.
2: Yeah.
0: Wily. Yeah. I love that word. The lion versus the weasel. I don't know what he, weasel exactly.
3: Well, I guess Flanders is also a lion, though. Or fox. They're all lions. Well, I'd say fox it's like <laughs> yeah. a fox, actually. Yeah, yeah, he's more like a fox. Flanders has a lion. Brabant has a lion. Haino has a lion. But Armagnac, do, do they have four lions? Yeah. Armagnac has four lions. <laughs> yeah. Haino, oh. does ha- Haino also has four lions, actually. All right. <laughs> yeah, there's a You've lot of too lions much stuff, in the low John. countries. You've got too much stuff. <laughs> yeah, got oh, too many too coats of arms. Yeah, you can't also have lions.
0: Yeah. Okay, so you would moving fast. on to the v on throne. This we could have just skipped this whole rating yeah. thing because yeah. John is winning everything. Yeah, he
1: really yeah. is
0: just on that. <laughs> the v on throne. I'm, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna skim through this. just John was in power from 1407 to 1413 and 1418 to 1419 so more or less seven years um Mm. obviously he's not the official regent neither of them are but we're going to count you know controlling paris basically as being the regent Mm -hmm. in this period Mm. sort of kind of there's also the bit where the court is at trois as well and it's a bit confusing Mm -hmm. but whatever armagnac essentially ruled france by occupying paris for five Mm. years from 1413 though his official hold over France is thought to have lasted more from 1415 to 1418 which is just three years um when this is when Orléans was in captivity in England and the Dauphin was still sort of finding his feet and kind of relying on Armagnac so either way Mm. it's less than John the Fearless who handily once again, r- wins this round, as he's won every round.
3: You know, I I will say, doing my, my episodes on John the Fearless has given me an increased appreciation of Louis of Guienne. Um. So, you know, yeah, he really was able yeah, to keep Armagnac and, to an extent, Burgundy in check. You know, 14 is a pretty good year if you ignore Agincourt. Well, Agincourt does happen at the end,
0: so... Yeah, yeah, it all comes tumbling down from that point. The Dauphin was definitely a contender. Um, the first Dauphin, I should say, was definitely a contender mm-hmm. for the Regency of Madness, but I didn't know where to put him. So,
3: <laughs> Yeah, it would be hard to kind of put him alongside someone else.
0: Yeah, and ultimately he is kind of getting controlled by someone at every single point. It, yeah. That's right, whether that's exactly. Barry Except or, for
3: 1415. Um, <laughs> yeah, but... Yeah. Yeah,
0: don't know. I just
3: can't. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I get it. I, I, I just—he does kind of get a bit of a bum rap in history. Yeah. yeah, and so does Armagnac,
0: which honestly is 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 deserved. Uh, that one's fair. <laughs> so all that yeah.
3: aside, uh, John the Fearless, John the Fearless, uh, is, one. is the supreme. Ooh. He's the supreme yes, regent the supreme
2: of this episode. Regent.
3: So yeah, now he can uh, join his father. In the poll, yeah, right? join his father and
0: John Duke of Barry uh, in the mm, poll yeah. to see who will be the ultimate Regent of Madness. Yeah, um, it's a big family affair right now. I'm still rooting for Barry over these Burgundian, <laughs> these so and so. I, I will say, <laughs> I, I did, uh, <laughs> I, I did
3: put a. Pl- <laughs> I put a plug for the Regency of Madness in my uh, latest episode, so you might get some uh, Burgundian sympathizers nice. coming over. Oh no! Oh, the tide,
0: <laughs> the tide is turning. The Parisians are rioting. <laughs> oh dear! The angry mob is it, is shifting.
3: <laughs> it's coming for you.
0: <laughs> um. Well. Um. Well, we've had, we've had very good feedback for these episodes so far, so yes. I, I hope you guys are enjoying this little detour that we're taking, mm-hmm. and which enables us to get a lot further into the details of the juicy murders and scandals that are happening in this period. And there will be even more next episode uh, when mm-hmm. we talk about uh, uh, two women now.
1: Ooh!
0: which Eliza will be overjoyed at. We're Ooh. talking about Isabeau of Bavaria, wife mm. of uh, Charles VI. And we're going to be talking about uh, Yolande of Aragon, Duchess of Ooh. Anjou, who becomes a bit of a rival matriarch, let's say, to Isabeau. Um, mm-hmm. Then after that, we we, we, ha- we have uh, one more episode in the Regency of Madness as well, where, um, oh, by the way, next episode... Uh, Katie from Queen's Podcast will be joining us, which is Yay. very exciting. We are very excited to have her. And then after that, Veronica will be returning again. And um, I'm going to be talking about the Duke of Bedford, Henry V's brother. And she's going to be talking about Charles of Orléans, the long-awaited, uh, but currently captured in, in after Agincourt, the sensitive poet duke.
2: <laughs> oh. um,
0: so, yeah, well, you guys have a lot to look forward to. And then after that, of course, we got... Charles the Sixth himself and Woohoo! Joan of Arc as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that is the next month of episodes is going to be pretty I crazy, um, and we we can't wait. But thank you, Josh, for joining us. For
2: yes, thank you uh,
3: for yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. It a lot of fun again of the Regency of Madness. The Burgundians have to leave their mark. <laughs> we will definitely be looking for excuses
0: um, to have, have you have on you again back. because. Yeah. The beginning, please have do a very significant part in French history. Um, so, with all of that said, uh, now that we have our winner, um,
3: that is going to be Au revoir from me, and Goodbye from me, and a Farvel from me.
1: My name's Sebastian Major. And Sebastian
2: Major is great. I'm Rebecca Larson with the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. It's a continent podcast. The history of American food.
3: Partial histories. Tsar power. The history of Persia. Wittenberg to Westphalia. Kirstie of a child podcast. The Siakla. Pontifax. To Francium. Apparently. Everyone. We're thrilled to be presenting at the 2023 Intelligent Speech Conference. My favorite podcasters at Intelligent Speech. I will be speaking at Intelligent Speech Online this year. Mark your calendars for this November 4th. It's a three-ring circus of fascinating content with around 24 hours of live presentations. So go to IntelligentSpeechOnline.com to get your tickets check with your favorite podcast host because they probably have a discount code you can use for 10% off. And we'll see you at the Intelligent Speaks Conference. November 4th. It'll be a doozy.